0: Thanks so much. This is going to be just a fun, informal conversation. I mean, we've had contact over the years now via phone, in our meetings with ASWIS, all our collaboration and contact. And I really appreciate the opportunity to just kind of hang out with you. So what I do know is that you played pro ball and that you're very, very committed to sports and how they can actually just help in the development of a human being. So I wanted to start there and just ask you, like, how did your relationship with basketball begin? (laughs) That's a loaded question.
1: How did my relationship with basketball begin? I really don't know. I always tell people, this is a funny story, that I kind of stumbled into it, literally stumbled into it. (laughs) Uh I was always tall growing up. And so, you know, you had coaches like, oh, she's a six-footer. We need her, you know? So I was constantly getting recruited, quote unquote, to play, like even in elementary, middle school. I was terrible. Okay. So terrible. I sucked at sports. I was (laughs) on Okay, I'm very surprised. (laughs) I was uncoordinated, but I gave it a chance. I did pick up a ball and I was terrible. And so I just made it like a personal mission to get better. I wanted to prove everyone wrong. Everyone was like, oh, she sucks. You know, she's not good. You know, the pressure or whatever and things like that. So I just made a commitment to myself that I was going to work really hard at it. That's a short version of the story, but that's kind of how it happened. I made a commitment to myself that I was going to prove all these naysayers wrong about my ability to play sports, and I just took off from there.
0: Thank you for that story, and I think it's special in a lot of different ways. I mean, you line up 10 young ladies like yourself, and that had been the situation. Not all 10 of you are going to respond the same way. You had a determination that was already in you as a young girl a lot of people could have been like, eh, whatever, they can want me to do that, but I don't want to do that. Where does that determination come from? Or where did that come from for you?
1: Yeah, that's a multi-layered, I guess I'll have a multi-layered response. I always say, you know, I grew up in Pontiac, Michigan, a poverty-stricken city, urban city, a lot of minority populations. And so, you know, I have seen the quote-unquote struggle. My mom was a single parent. My parents split up when I was young and I don't know, you can ask my family, they might say I'm stubborn, I'm hot headed, or, you know, I have grit and I have tenacity and I'm resilient, but I think it stems from that. I am a product of my environment in that sense, but really instilled in me working hard and going after it, going after goals and dreams and things of that nature. And then you couple that with my Hispanic background, Latinx background. I'm Puerto Rican, and I say that loud and proud. And, you know, I was always taught to put your best foot forward, to reach for, you know, your dreams. My grandmother always says, no te rindas, which is never give up. And so, just my mom always pushing me to be better. And my grandmother there behind me, as well as all my other family, I've always seen hardworking people, even my mom, you know, so I just really attribute my hard work and my tenacity to the people I had around me, the mentors I had, coaches I had, my family, my upbringing, and just seeing people struggle made me
0: want to push harder to represent and be better. I love it. I love it. I mean, we have a lot in common. My sister-in-law is Puerto Rican and she grew up with a single mom in the Bronx. So I've learned a lot about the culture from her and her mom and through my nieces and nephews now. So that's awesome. I mean, we could talk for hours here, but what was the transition then when you started to prove people wrong that actually I can perform on the court? What was your transition from high school to college like? And how did that happen? How that
1: happened? So first it was, you know the motivation to get better and prove people wrong. And then it kind of, I've always had this neck of like education and wanting to go to college. Uh, My family, my mom instilled education in me early, like valuing education. So once I started to be like, okay, I'm pretty good at this. I'm starting to get attention. I'm developing (laughs) my skills. Uh I could really go to college. And this is my ticket out of the hood, quote unquote, or my circumstance. And so that's really what it was. It was literally like, I can use basketball education to get my college paid for and go to school. So that's kind of how it started. And I fell in love with the game. And so it just pushed me even more. So that Wanting to get better and that tenacity to get better and prove people wrong really was just the foundation for me to find my passion, find basketball and to really fall in love with it and for it to propel my life forward.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, there, one might imagine that there's a lot of pressure involved with that. Like you're playing a game you love, you are excelling in it, you're having fun, you're enjoying it and it's now the ticket out maybe not just for you, but your family. Do you see that as pressure for one? And if so, how did you manage that? Or maybe even continue on just another level?
1: Yeah, how did I manage that? It was a lot of pressure once I started getting that attention from local newspapers, from college recruiters and stuff like that. And I would even say like, my high school counterparts and, you know, like, oh, Steph's gonna do well in this game. Steph's gonna help us win this game, you know? So that was a lot of pressure to kind of have my city on my back. You know, a lot of people were looking at me like, oh, Steph's gonna be one of the first to go to a Division One college. And so I would say that I handled it at that time by not trying to pay too much attention to it because I was afraid of it. I didn't know it then, you know, retrospectively, I know it now. I was kind of afraid, like, whoa, this is a lot. So I kind of try not to pay attention to it and just put my best foot forward. That's kind
0: of how I handle it, uh-huh, <laughs> honestly. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I appreciate the honesty. I mean, I appreciate it. I know my listeners do. But when, if you were to look back at your collegiate athlete self, your student athlete self in college, mm-hmm. well, is there anything that you would have done differently to make your experience even that much better or deeper or more profound or more meaningful? Is there anything?
1: Knowing what I know now and being so involved in sports, social work, and the Alliance of Social Workers and sport, and that kind of being my passion now, I would have paid more attention or have gotten more assistance in the mental health realm. I came up an era where it was kind of like mental health didn't exist. It it did exist, but like in athletics, it was kind of like tough it up, buttercup. right. (laughs) Buttercup. Uh Yeah. You know, and coming up where I came from in a city where there is a high population of minorities, black, Latinx, you know, like you don't talk about mental health and the thing, the problems that happen in your family, you don't talk about that. What happens in your house stays in your house. Right. So I wish I would have gotten that type of support Because I had so many transitions during college, even though that was one phase of my life. There were so many transitions where I could have utilized that assistance and maybe had an even better experience.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I appreciate that. So there are a lot of student athletes at different levels, high school, college, going into post-college, whether it's semi-pro, recreational, or Olympic hopeful training type of things a lot of the families and athletes i've talked to have similar narrative as what you're talking about about we don't talk about our family business with other people like that's private like how is someone i don't know going to help me like they don't know anything about me and oftentimes you and i both know this that a person who is put in front of them potentially to help them does not reflect them or is not relatable in their eyes right if there were any collegiate athletes who fit that bill listening right now, what would you say to them about accessing a mental health service, whatever that might be, given that narrative?
1: Yeah, I would say don't let that narrative steer you away from mental health or seeking mental health. Now with the virtual world, I mean, it doesn't even have to be within your university. Do your research, find people, reach out to people. And also, you know, don't let that narrative or people not looking like you lead to an assumption that they may not be able to help you in some way or help you expand in some way. Maybe you don't feel comfortable with that person for mental health therapy. Maybe they can connect you to someone who you will feel comfortable with. And so that would be my biggest piece of advice. If you're struggling with something do not stay silent would be the thing. Do not stay silent. Do your research. You know, the internet and technology makes things possible nowadays. You know, you can hop on a virtual call just like we are right now doing this podcast. So the number of mental health professionals you have at your fingertips is unlimited right now. And so if you're struggling or just want help with something, reach out. Do not be afraid to, because we have everything at our fingertips nowadays.
0: I mean, that's true. Yeah. And I think we're all adjusting to that access and how to have it benefit us. I mean, I think that what I've learned too is that the way that, and I love your take on it, being able to see your mental health just as important as your physical health and that we can treat it the same way. We can prevent mental health injury, just like physical injury. We can assess it. We can treat it. We can diagnose it. And we can be on a road to recovery it's parallel, right, to physical health. And I think that once we start to see it that way, it becomes more normalized and just part of what we do. Like we go to get a physical every year, right? Hey, what about a mental health checkup? Right. Wherever you're at, you don't have to wait till you're struggling. And, you, and as an athlete, it can be about sport performance too. Finding a professional to help you with that potentially because that's gonna you're going to feel better about your sport, how you perform, and then overall and your mental health when that happens. Do you agree with that? I do. I agree
1: with that so much. And now knowing what I know and still learning about that mind-body connection now, my career ended, my professional career as a basketball player ended because of injury and things like that. So, I can't help but to question wow, if I could go back and really had that mental health piece down and that mind body connection down, could I have extended my playing career five years, six years? You know, like I think about that. There's no regrets. I am where I'm supposed to be right now, but I can't help but to think about that. Wow, if I would have had these resources that could help me make that mind body connection and things of that nature, how long could I have extended my playing career or could I have prevented what happened to me?
0: hmm. Well, let's talk about that. Tell me about your transition from college ball to the pros and what that was like and what it entailed for you.
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> it's one of my most cherished memories. I oh, guess. good. Well, good. Well, my transition from college to the pros was kind of intermingled because I started playing for the Puerto Rican women's national team, the Olympic team during college. So I would in the summer's I would go to Puerto Rico and play for them and travel abroad and play in tournaments and then come back and still play college ball. Wow. Yeah. So there wasn't really like a cutoff transition. It was kind of already intermingled. But within that, I had so many difficult transitions. I recently published an article, very personal, and it took a lot of vulnerability for me to publish that and to put it out there. But during that time, I was in an unhealthy relationship and I stayed quiet. I didn't seek help. It was a very difficult time in my life. So that transition involved all of that. That came with me, all that, that baggage and everything came with me into the pros. And again, I can't help but to think about if I would have gotten assistance with that, would my outcome had been different. And so I don't know if that answered the question, but maybe we can get a little bit into some more specifics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability here as well as in your article. I mean, the more people hear people's stories like yours, the more they feel like they can talk about theirs if they're going through the same thing. So that's really inspiring. And thank you for that openness. I feel like in my sport performance work, there's a direct correlation to if you are stressed emotionally or psychologically in your life, you're more likely to get physically injured. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, is it simple? But basically, if you're stressed emotionally, you're going to be stressed physically. It's that mind-body connection that you're talking about, right? Research shows that your body and your muscles are more apt to be chronically tensed and stressed, and so then even your pre-warm-up routine, your stretching, your conditioning isn't enough to get you to an optimal physical performance state to, as much as possible, prevent a physical injury because your emotional and psychological life and world and relationships are stressed.
1: Yes, your body keeps the score, as they say. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yes.
0: That's a book, everyone. I can't pronounce his last name. What is it, Stephanie? Do you remember? The Body Keeps the Score. I
1: don't remember, but I just remember the book. And it's so true. Like our body keeps the score. And as athletes, our body keeps the score what we go through in the sporting realm, what we're going through in our personal lives. And so many times that's a missed thing. People just look at athletes like this invincible person that's just supposed to tough it out all the time because they've been tough all their lives or all their careers. And it's just, we have to look
0: beyond that and move beyond that. Uh Mm-hmm. I just remembered the name of the author, Vander Kolk. Vander Kolk, right yeah. right? yeah. And it's huge because it's trauma. It's trauma. Mm-hmm. Our body keeps a score of trauma, which is what happens in an unhealthy relationship, what happens in an under-resourced environment, what happens when your mom is working day and night to keep you fed and clothed and support your athletic dreams. That's mm-hmm. trauma. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think what
0: people fail to
1: realize, or some people, not everyone, but, you know, some people fail to realize is that trauma doesn't just go away. If you move out of a a circumstance or move away from a circumstance or get out of a circumstance, that trauma just doesn't disappear. It stays with you. And so it accumulates. But one way we can start to remove those pieces of trauma or get rid of, or at least heal, start healing from them is through mental health therapy and kind of addressing the trauma and coming to terms with the trauma and what it is. But if we never address it, it's it's there. So that childhood trauma is still with you. That trauma you experienced during college athletics is still with you. So you go into, you know, later adulthood and middle-aged life with all of this, then it just carries over. It doesn't go away until you actually address it.
0: Exactly. Just because you might not remember it fully or want to not remember it fully doesn't mean it doesn't live within you. And people are like, why do I have to tell that damn story over and over again? It's so painful. I mean, well, that's the exact reason that you do. We tell it till it's not painful. We tell it till we move through. And then there's other interventions along the way that can help. Like I've done like acupuncture, somatic massage, the different ways that can like also help your mental health, but don't need to be only therapy. There's sort of adjunct collaborative types of interventions that you can put in. Even just saying gratitudes can change your whole neurological kind of being and your whole energy in your body. So like simple things that don't cost money that are free that you can do regularly (laughs) can help. But a lot of people are just learning that. I think it's about shedding the old school kind of commentary or philosophy about what mental health is and how to treat an athlete like how the athlete treats themselves and how a coach or other folk treat them, right? Yeah, and that's about
1: culture. And so it goes back to what we started this interview talking about, is that athletic culture. So we have to shift that culture from, oh, mental health doesn't matter to no, we need to address the athlete, their mental health, their entire being, their mind, their body, their soul, spiritually, emotionally, everything. And also ties back to generational and cultural Mental health practices or mental health beliefs, you know, that stigmatize mental health belief in Black communities, Hispanic communities, and oh, we don't do mental health or we don't really know what that is. So we're going to stay away from it. So it's really addressing
0: mental health from all cultural realms. That's right. And incorporating some cultural traditions and practices into your routine to take care of your mental health. I mean, meditation has become so sort of mainstream but that comes from Eastern beliefs, Eastern traditions that have been going on for hundreds of years. And so like meditation is, it's funny, I don't call it spiritual anymore because it's just so common, commonplace in like my world and my life to recognize the roots of it. And then different ways that people might use prayer or group healing, like coming together and chanting or talking in a very informal way, bringing all that in. That's like mental health doesn't have to be hiring a therapist or like, being in therapy, right? It'd be great to have that as like the focal and that everything is around it or vice versa. But like, there's many ways to take care of our mental health.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I have learned and am still learning what that can look like and kind of going away from what that traditional picture looks like. Like meditation is not just like doing yoga. Like, you know, that's a piece of mindfulness, but that's what people think. You know, you say meditation or mindfulness, a lot of people picture someone doing yoga or in a folded leg pose or something yeah, like that. Sitting
0: on a cushion or something somewhere mm-hmm. in the corner. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely
1: not that. Mindfulness could be at practice and really feeling the ball. What does the basketball feel like? How does the leather feel on my hand? Or whatever it is, you know, it could be anything like that. And so I think what you said is super accurate. It's changing people's perspective or mindset as to, what therapeutic, quote unquote, interventions really are and what they look like. It doesn't have to be going to talk therapy and talking with a clinician. It could be other practices that you implement that you're comfortable with.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. And naming it as such, so people might be doing it all their life or in their family's life and not even really realizing like, oh, this helps my mental health. Yeah, like people that say grace before dinner. Mm-hmm. That's
1: gratitude. You're, you know, you're practicing gratitude. And so when you say that, people are like, oh, I guess, I guess I do practice gratitude sometimes. But (laughs) when you say gratitude to someone, they think, oh, I have to sit down and do a journal and write it out. And it doesn't have to be that. The thing about mental health and well-being is that you can make it what you want to so it can fit your lifestyle as an athlete, as a, middle-aged adult, as a clinician, as anyone. You can make it fit to what you
0: need. Exactly, exactly. I think one of my favorite things I'm working on with one of my athletes right now that she's actually going to take into her team is the gratitude jar. So you don't have to sit there like in like 10 minutes formally like write down, I'm grateful for this. Right. And like, I always have to emphasize that it's the practice of expressing gratitudes, not what you're expressing gratitudes for. So some of my athletes are like, well, I wrote down like, five gratitudes yesterday. I can't think of anyone. We'll write those same ones down or say those same things down or put them in the gratitude jar, which is like we're going to bring into her locker room and her tour team locker room. So she's going to decorate it with like stickers of the logos of her team and the school. And then like she and her co-captain are going to put, at least they're going to start the jar by putting 10 on different colored pieces of paper, small, like one gratitude per piece of paper and put it in there and like introduce the idea and the benefit to their teammates and then have them contribute. And then, whenever anyone's feeling low or not themselves, they can go in there, pick it up, read it, have a smile, maybe, and then put it back. And right now, and then after that, all the energy changes. Serotonin is impacted. Everything is flowing differently. And so, I'm like proud of her for wanting to. We had discussed it. She's like, I want to really bring that up in the locker room. I think that's a good idea. So, it's like being creative about how you do it and not doing it alone. And I think it's really great. I think it's really great. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you, Stephanie, to be able to lend the visibility that you do as a woman of color in sports? Well, I love
1: this question so much because it just ties into everything we've already been talking about as far as my background, coming from where I come from, speaking how I do, looking how I look, not being afraid to say that I'm from Pontiac, Michigan or the metro Detroit area and being able to bust out some Spanish if I need to. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really didn't experience othering until I got to college sports. I played on a predominantly Black team all throughout middle school, high school and things like that. I've been surrounded by culture and Black, Hispanic, Asian cultures so, it wasn't until I got to college that I was like, whoa, predominantly white institution. What the heck? I'm the outsider. Like, I'm the outsider. Like, I'm. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So, for me, I think that's when it clicked in my head a little bit. Like, we need more representation. And so, I'm in my doctoral studies. And a part of the motivation for pursuing my doctoral studies was that my experience as a college athlete and being a student in a classroom where none of my instructors look like me. So that's one aspect. And then you said, you know, the sport aspect, even more, I played on predominantly white teams in college. And so it was uncomfortable at times, I would say, you know, especially if you're someone trying to learn and grow and figure out their identity and who they are. And so For me to be able to offer that representation to academia, one, but also to be involved in sports and the alliance of social workers in sports and be a person of color and knowing that college and professional athletes are looking towards me as, hey, that's someone that looks like me or that someone that talks like me or that is from a similar background like me. It really is. It just fuels me, I feel like. And it, it really makes me feel a sense of purpose like I'm doing the right thing. I don't know.
0: Does that make sense? But that's just how I feel. (laughs) No, of course. I mean, it doesn't have to make sense. It does, but it makes sense to you. And that's how you feel. And I'm kind of like, I'm moved right now because I'm remembering my first Alliance for Social Worker and Sports symposium that I attended. And I'm looking at all the faces. It was virtual. I'm looking at all the faces. And I don't know if you know this, but you were the first person I reached out to. I was like, she's brown. I want to talk to her. I want to know her. The way she talks and moves is familiar to me. And so I want to talk with her. And you were my first call. Mm -hmm. And it was all about that. It was so important for me as a woman of color.
1: I remember that. And I remember feeling like so honored when you called me because I was like, wow, she's this amazing person. She has all these accolades and all this amazing background and experience and she's reaching out to me and when I talked to you, you know, like the same thing, you had the same kind of mannerisms, the same way you talked, you know, just how you presented yourself as a person of color and it just really moved me and it made me feel, I never expressed this to you, but it really just made me feel like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be right now and I was just, I felt so humbled that you reached out to me and it's been a great connection, like we've been connected ever since. <laughs>
0: Wow, I never knew that. It means a lot to me. It means a lot. Like I think it's a reminder to everyone that you can have I mean, all these accolades and all this experience and all of this and that, but still want to connect, still want to connect with something that's familiar, with someone who is familiar, or at least feel like it's familiar, and enough to want to check it out more. And like it's my privilege to have done that and to stay connected. I mean, it, it makes me a better person. So I appreciate you for who you are. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. How? I mean, we've talked about many of your life experiences. We know you're in your doctoral program. How have your life experiences, on and off the court, influenced you to pursue higher education in the field of social work? Why social work? You could be anywhere.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is my life story. I kind of stumble into a lot of things. But anyway, I stumbled into sports, and now I'm going to say I kind of stumbled into social work too because. Going into college, I knew I wanted to be in a profession that helped people. I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do. You know, I just knew I wanted to do something with people and kind of study people and how they are, how they interact in communities. I had that interest from way back then. And then so I kind of went away from that. I was solely focused on sports. I was like, I'm going to get my degree and have that as a back burner. But really, I'm going to go pro. I want to play, you know, in the WNBA. My career in sports is going to be very long. Meanwhile, I'm having all these experiences with othering and kind of being at a predominantly white institution and knowing that, hey, something's wrong here. But I didn't put the puzzle pieces together. So. Long story short, when I got injured and I had to figure something out, it really was trial and error. I love the medical field. So I dabbled in the medical field in, in various positions from phlebotomy to other medical positions within the laboratory at various hospitals and things like that. So that didn't quite pan out for I say it's because the universe didn't want me in that position. It didn't pan out what I wanted to do. So I was like, what can I do? And I was, honestly, I was in a real vulnerable part of my life. And I would say like a very low part of my life, a struggling point. And I was like, what do I want to do? And so a lot of research led me to social work. I decided to pursue my MSW at the University of Southern California. That's where I met Dr. Stacey Craig, who is now my mentor. She introduced me into the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports. And I was like, wait a minute, I could do this? And I can incorporate all these other experiences and be a voice and be a representation and also go into academia, which I've always wanted to do, but just didn't know how to quite get there. And so really it was downhill from there. After I became a part of the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports and kind of like found this passion, I started to figure out how I could go in academia, what research interests I could have that can lead to bettering the lives of athletes all over, not just college athletes, but athletes in general, how sport can be used for community development. And it just kind of led me down that path and reconnected me to my original goal when I was experiencing othering, when I was experiencing, you know, professors who were all white, that didn't look like me. It kind of reconnected me back to that original motivation to be a person of color in academia, to be that representation for that next student athlete that walks into class. They see a professor that looks like them, that talks like them, they can break down a subject to them so they can understand it. And now I also have goals to be a clinician for athletes, and things of that nature. But that's kind of how all that story just circled back around and tied everything back together. It was not a linear process. It definitely was a lot of ups and downs. Like I said, before I got into my MSV program, I was at a real low point in my life and kind of struggling with that athletic identity and transitioning out of the game. But I think, you know, everything happens for a reason. And that's kind of why I'm here and why I'm able to do what I'm doing now.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, you keep saying you stumbled into basketball. You stumbled in the field. Girl, I don't believe that.
1: <laughs> it feels like it because it wasn't planned. <laughs> but I feel like that was all in place. Mm-hmm. It was. I just couldn't see it because my mind was not clear. Now that I have my mind, right, we're talking about mental health. And when I really started to like dabble into that and really taking care and of me, of stuff, of myself. When I started taking care of me, that's when the picture started
0: getting clear. Like, wait, all these pieces are connecting. But prior to that... It felt like stumbling. I see. Yes, but like yes. in your retrospection, in your reflection, in your looking back, the woman that you are now to the young lady you were then, mm-hmm. you can see that like, these people were put in my life for a reason. Like, this is why it happened this way. No, that's moving. That's deep. So here's a question my last question for you today. I don't want to be morbid, but I'm setting up scene for you. <laughs> if, if you're able to attend your own funeral, what would you want the people that you love and care about the most to be able to say about you at that funeral? Girl, you go going to get me emotional.
1: <laughs> That's really deep right there. <laughs> it's funny because it all goes back to the beginning. I would like them to say that I'm a caring person, one, that I have everyone's best interest at heart. And that I'm a fighter. Like I fought all my life. That is me. I don't care. You know, from the moment I was born, like, you know, I was born three pounds. So I wasn't supposed to make it then either. So Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You wait until the end to tell me that. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah, wow. So I've been a fighter all my life and I think that's kind of I know that's what they would say already like so I would want them to hone in on that and I would want that legacy to be passed down that we are more than our circumstances. We can overcome our circumstances and we can change the trajectory of our own lives as long as we put forth the effort and just continue to battle.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I'm like, ah, I'm emotional. I mean, a three pound baby to grow up to be six feet tall. (laughs) Six foot two. (laughs) Okay, you know, correct me, six foot two. And to do and be all that you are is just really inspiring and moving. And I just really thank you for the opportunity to share space and time with you and to have this kind of conversation. I feel like we could talk for hours. Yeah. But like, I just appreciate just all that you are and what you bring. And I know people are going to benefit from hearing this conversation. And I mean, I don't want to be dramatic, but like, I think it can change lives. So thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me. I think that for people that are listening, whether athletes, clinicians, whoever is listening to this podcast, I just want to thank you for taking the time out to listen to my story. Lisa, thank you for having me on the Ath Mindset. I think what you're doing is amazing. And- I think I've told you this before when I grow up, (laughs) I want to be like you. (laughs) I'm joking now, but I'm serious in what I say. Like, I think your mission, everything you're doing for the world of athletics, for athlete and enhancing the lives of athletes is amazing. And I say that with all my heart. And I just want to thank you for allowing me to share this space with you.
0: Um, Thank you. Thank you for all those words and just being who you are in my life. I really, really appreciate it.
2: That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur, or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. SportsEpreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide.